your seats. We'll have time afterwards for fellowship and uh, for refreshments after the service. All right, I think that did it. Nice, Gina. Good work. The feedback. We need to do that every Sunday. <laughs> Again, just want to welcome you. My name is Dan Song. I'm the pastor here at Crossroads. Um, I do want to mention before we get into the word this morning, it is Mother's Day, and some of you might be wondering why we don't do anything or why we don't acknowledge it, even as I acknowledge it. Um, Mother's Day can be a hard day. Um, you know, whether it's broken, fractured relationships, uh, mother that has passed away. Um, for some of us, especially women, the desire to be married and to have children is a real painful thing. And so here at Crossroads, you know, rather than trying to celebrate it and rejoice in that, it's more of a time to just kind of say, you know, this is the reality of our world. Uh, yes, you know, as even as I've met some of you this morning, I've welcomed you and said happy Mother's Day, but something that I think can be a hard, lonely place to be on a, on a Sunday, the second Sunday of May each year. And so whether it's Father's Day, Mother's Day, we do try to just keep it much more on the DL, acknowledging the fact that it is hard. It's a really hard thing for us to uh, be in. And so we, we recognize rather that as the body of Christ, as a family of God, there's something beautiful that we get to celebrate here that for all our women, from the youngest to the oldest, that we get to celebrate them as daughters of the living king. And that's what we're getting into this morning, is this king, who is the king of the universe. And you've seen this theme kind of throughout Daniel. And so if you have your Bibles, turn to Daniel chapter 4. And if you don't, uh, maybe you're visiting, maybe you're a skeptic and you're searching. We do have Bibles provided for you in the chair below in front of you, and so go ahead, use that Bible. If you want to take it with you, that's our gift to you this morning as well. Uh, we love to see those Bibles disappear and make us have to buy more. So the, if you are using that, though, turn to page 741 of the Pew Bible, and then uh, we'll be looking here in chapter 4. We're going to actually start in verse 19 and finish that chapter. I think pretty much you'll get the, the gist of the previous verses because Daniel is going to interpret the dream that the king Nebuchadnezzar just had. And it's troublesome. He's, he's very deeply troubled by this second dream that he has. And Daniel is the one who interprets it for the king. And as we read this, I want to ask you the question... Are you a prideful person? Do you struggle with pride? I'm sure many of us are like, no. Well, if you're in that kind of place, then let me tell you, this message is for you. It's for me. It's for those in your lives that you see uh, in difficult places. And it's an amazing text that shows the transformation of the most powerful king at this time. A man who is absolutely proud, who has had all the successes of this world, be humbled to a place where he acknowledged who the true king is. 
And I know for a lot of us, we are a church that is successful. Many of you sit here and you've had successful careers, successful families. If not, you desire that so badly. And in so doing, I think we have a lot to learn that the Lord desires to teach us this morning. So follow along with me on page 741, starting in verse 19. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar answered and said, My lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. The tree you saw in your dream, which grew and became strong so that its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth, whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in which was food for all, under which beasts of the field found shade, and in whose branches the birds of the heavens lived, it is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to heaven, and your dominion to the ends of the earth. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, chop the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field, and let him be wet with the dew of heaven, and let his portion be with the beasts of the field till seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king. It is a decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord the king, that you shall be driven among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven, and seven periods of time shall pass over you till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he wills. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you, Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may be, perhaps, a lengthening of your prosperity. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence, and for the glory of my majesty, while the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be, made, shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you, until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he wills. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, till his hair grew as long as eagles' feathers, and his nails were like the bird's claws. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. 
All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the time my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he's able to humble. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning. Lord, it is true that pride comes before the destruction and a haughty spirit comes before the fall. And for every single one of us in this room, Lord, I know that we struggle with pride in some way or another. I pray that as we delve into this passage, Holy Spirit, won't you speak to us, transform us, open our eyes, give us ears to hear what you have to speak to us about this morning. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The Rumble in the Jungle, 1974. It was probably the greatest fight in the century. It was George Foreman, the undefeated boxing weight heavyweight champion versus Muhammad Ali. George Foreman was highly favored to win this fight in May Stadium in the country of Zaire. You see, Muhammad Ali was known for his quickness and his speed, but George Foreman, this undefeated heavyweight champion, had the most powerful punch, and there was no one who could stop that, not even Muhammad Ali. And as this bout began, Muhammad Ali did something that had never been done before. It was called the rope-a-dope. And this rope-a-dope basically let Muhammad, not Muhammad, George Foreman come at him as he rested upon the ropes. And he would cover his face and let George Foreman, who had all that power, just pummel at his body. And every now and then, George or Muhammad Ali would get in a quick jab into the face. But guess what that did after eight rounds? George Foreman got tired and more wary as he just used all of his strength, what he was known for. And by the end of the eighth round, as it was drawing to an end, Muhammad Ali began this series of quick jabs and began to pummel George Foreman, the undefeated, undisputed champ, and knocked him down and sent him into retirement. Why I share that story this morning is that over the course of these four chapters that we've looked at in the book of Daniel, we have seen the battle royale between God and King Nebuchadnezzar, between the king of the universe and the king of Babylon. It was an epic battle round by round for the past three rounds, we've seen God, the king of the universe, completely pummel and defeat King Nebuchadnezzar. And here in chapter 4, 
we see more of the same. King Nebuchadnezzar saw Daniel and his three friends, followers of Yahweh, the God of creation, rise and become the cream of the crop. They were the best because they followed Yahweh. King Nebuchadnezzar saw Daniel not only interpret his first dream, but tell him what the dream was. And what does Nebuchadnezzar do? Like an uppercut to his chin, he falls to the ground, lays prostrate, and worships the God of heaven. But then soon after, quickly in chapter 3, King Nebuchadnezzar is back to his old ways. And he sends Daniel's three friends into the fiery furnace. But what does he witness? He sees his three friends come out of the furnace, unscathed, unburnt. Not even their clothing was touched by fire. Not even a smell of burnt ash was picked up by King Nebuchadnezzar. And again, he worships and says all these things about how good God is. And how if anyone doesn't worship this God, that King Nebuchadnezzar would actually rip and tear the limbs off of these people. And what do we see in chapter 4? We see more of the same. He goes right back to his old ways. He believes he is the king of the world, the greatest. And like George Foreman, who was his own worst enemy, one commentator said that the pride got the best of him. King Nebuchadnezzar cannot see who God is for who he is and what he has done. And King Nebuchadnezzar is back to his old, old ways. And yet what's so amazing about this chapter is that as much of it is the same as the previous three chapters, there's something vastly different about this. Why? Because we see an amazing transformation that happens with King Nebuchadnezzar like never before. And for many of us here, whether it's pride that we're struggling with, success, our view of ourselves, or others that you know of, whether family, friends, neighbors, coworkers, and you desire to see transformation in their lives, this passage gives us that kind of hope. It gives us the hope that we need, not only to realize that we ourselves individually can be transformed, but that others around us can be transformed as well. And I want to see this in three ways, and specifically with King Nebuchadnezzar. First, it's a, a hard heart. Secondly, a broken heart. And then lastly, a humble heart. A hard heart, a broken heart, and a humble heart. Well, let's look at the first point here as we look at this story. A hard heart. King Nebuchadnezzar's actions are really a window into our own hearts. You know, in many respects, as I just shared, King Nebuchadnezzar never learns his lesson. He continues to think that he is the greatest thing in the world, the greatest thing since sliced bread. And he, in some ways, had all the right to think that. He had two of the wonders in the ancient world. Not only the hanging gardens, but also the wall that was 
about 40 feet wide or 40 feet deep and had all these intricate tunnels through these walls. But also the hanging gardens that basically looked like they were, uh, they were just elevated in midair. And he had a whole mechanism of how to water these beautiful gardens by itself, automated. He had built three palaces for himself. He had the most elaborate temple with all of the other religious artifacts in his own temple, including the God of Israel. He had the greatest military power. He had aqueducts and canals and things that we don't even think about. But he was the cream of the crop. He was the most powerful man in the world and probably the most interesting man in the world as well. And left to his own vices, he had all the right to say, I am the greatest thing in the world. I am king. I am the most powerful, the smartest, the greatest human being alive. And yet in each chapter where God humbles him and shows him who actually is king, he reverts right back to his old ways. And here in chapter 4, it's exactly the same thing. It's his second dream. But we didn't read this, but earlier, he doesn't go to Daniel first. He goes back to his intelligentsia, the magicians and the astrologers and the smartest men. And he goes to them asking what the interpretation of the dream is. He fails to believe and recognize that Daniel's God, the God of the cosmos, of the universe, is the one who can interpret it. And he looks over all the earth and over all of his kingdom in Babylon. And in verse 32, oh no, verse 28, or 30, sorry, 30. And the king answered and said, is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? It's all about him. In chapter 3, I didn't allude to this, but King Nebuchadnezzar kept saying, this this idol that I set up, that King Nebuchadnezzar set up. Seven times it's written that King Nebuchadnezzar set it up in six verses. King Nebuchadnezzar is full of pride. And he can never understand who God is because of his hard heart. There's this great illustration of John Elias. And he was an 18th century Welsh pastor. And he gives this great illustration of this blacksmith and a new dog that he had just got. And when this Welsh pastor came in to the blacksmith's um, work, when he first had gotten the dog, every time the blacksmith would hammer the horseshoe, this dog would bark and just go crazy with every single hammering of the horseshoe. But months had gone by. And this Welsh pastor came back. And as this blacksmith was beating at this horseshoe, the dog was just sleeping, completely quiet, and not even moved or startled by the hammering of the blacksmith. You see, Nebuchadnezzar had grown similarly accustomed to this anvil and saw the dog asleep by the fire, silent at last. You see, he had become just as accustomed to the hammering of the word of God and become just as silent. 
He had ignored God's word and rendered it his conscience increasingly immune to the impact on his own life. And this is what pride does. We become immune to the word of God. And we become unable to see ourselves for who we are clearly, but also who God is clearly as well. We become skewed in our own value of who we are and what we do and the successes that have come upon us. President Nixon, when he was going through the Watergate scandal, as one reporter had interviewed him, asked him about all the illegal activities that he had been, he had been doing. And guess what President Nixon's response was? If the president does it, it's not illegal. I mean, this is what happens with our puffed up pride. In our arrogance of who we are, we think more highly of ourselves than we really are. We no longer have a clear picture of our own weaknesses, of our strengths, but also of who God is. One example is just not too long ago, it was the, most, it was the perfect timing. It couldn't be more impeccable as far as the timing. I was pulling out of my driveway because I was in a rush to get to a session meeting. And right at the same time, my wife was coming home. And I never looked back because no one's there. And as soon as I backed up, I hear a crunch and then a honk. It might have been simultaneous, but that's the way I took it. And I get out of the car, and I knew it was my fault, but because of my own pride and arrogance, I look at my wife and I go, what were you doing? Didn't you see me pulling out? See, that's our pride and our inability to see who we are because pride distorts our own view of ourselves and of God. And here Nebuchadnezzar cannot see who God is nor who he is in light of God, who God is. But it's amazing because with a hard heart, God never leaves us in that place. You know, you think about the verse in Psalms, or in Proverbs, sorry, Proverbs 16, 18. Pride goes before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. And it's when we're in that place of arrogance and pride that God will always bring us down. Why? Because we have a skewed view of who we are. And we think we're greater than we are, and then we, something happens, and we fall, and it leads to destruction. There's this great parable, a children's story that I'll read to you, that I think gets to this. There was once a frog who lived in a pond, but poor frog, his pond was drying up. If he didn't find water, soon he would die. The frog heard of a stream just over the hill that was full of lots of water. If only he could get there. But how could he? His short frog legs could not carry him so far away. So the frog came up with an idea. He convinced two birds to carry either end of a stick. Then he would put his mouth around the stick in the middle and hold on tight until the birds flew, over, flew him over to the other side. Smart thinking frog, he said to himself. As they flew in the air, everything was going well. He had good jaws and was able to hold on tight. 
It was a pretty strange thing to see, though. Two birds and a frog flying through the air. Looking down, they saw a cow in a pasture. The cow was pretty impressed at what, the, what he saw in the sky and yelled up to them, Now, who came up with that idea? The frog heard the question and couldn't resist replying, I did, as he fell from the sky to his impending death. Isn't that true? It's pride that leads to the fall. And it's a haughty spirit that goes before our destruction. And here we see this with King Nebuchadnezzar. You could say and argue that it is absolutely extreme, or some of us in this room actually might think that it's just a myth what happens to King Nebuchadnezzar. That he would actually think and act and become an animal, like an ox, and eat grass and have claws like a bird. But did you know that there is actually a psychological disorder? And some people call it zoanthropy or boanthropy. But it's this idea that persons actually think that he or she becomes an animal and behaves accordingly. It's been documented even in modern times of this actual psychological disorder. And here, King Nebuchadnezzar has this destruction and this hard fall for God to put him in his place. And his heart is absolutely broken. I mean, think about this. After the dream is interpreted and Daniel warns him, Daniel actually says, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you in verse 27. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. Daniel warns him, you've got to acknowledge who God is. Repent. Worship the God of creation. Otherwise, you will fall. And a year has passed in verse 28 and 29. Twelve months has passed after the warning. And here is King, ba uh, King Nebuchadnezzar. And he says, is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? I mean, he still thinks and cannot listen to God. And because of his pride, he falls. And as he says those words, right, it's amazing. Immediately in verse 33, the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. As those words hung in King Nebuchadnezzar's mouth, God speaks to him, and this destruction and fall happens upon King Nebuchadnezzar. And what I so, so appreciate, but it's also a warning for all of us, is when does his destruction and fall happen? Is it when things are going well? Or is it when things are going horribly wrong? It's when things are going well, when he's flourishing, when he's at rest and able to ex observe all of his greatness. It's then when the mighty fall happens for him. And for all of us in this room, the successes that God grants us, the blessings that he gives us, we so distort that and think that it's because of me it's because of what I've done. 
But what we realize through a broken heart that King Nebuchadnezzar experiences, he realizes that none of it is because of him. And this verse 32, it's said three times. But he says, know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. King Nebuchadnezzar begins to realize who the true king is in a place of absolute brokenness. And for us, things might be going hunky-dory and things are going well. You've graduated. You've got a job. You've got a great family. Work is going well. You've got a great raise. You can't complain about life. Well, now's the moment to begin to think in your own heart who deserves all that credit. Is it yourself? Do you think that you've done it all is because of my intelligence, my, my intellect, my strength, my money, my power, my influence? Or are you in a place where you could recognize it's because of who God is and his graciousness and his mercy? See, a lot of times we begin to think that it's all about me and what I've done that leads and continues to add on to this prideful, arrogant heart. You see, Nebuchadnezzar's experience and this broken heart had the, the desired effect that God desired. King Nebuchadnezzar finally recognized the difference between himself and God. And he realized who the true king was. And that's where we see him be able to confess. Starting in verse 34 all the way to the end in verse 37. This amazing confession, which brings us to the third point, a humble heart. You see, it's through that fall. It's through a broken spirit that he finally comes to a place where he realizes who God is. And therefore, a humility reigns in his heart. Now, some people, when they read this passage, smarter men than me and women than me, read this, and there's actually a great debate whether King Nebuchadnezzar truly was transformed and changed or not. John Calvin, actually, in his commentary, argues that he's not changed. But I'm going to have to disagree with John Calvin for a moment. doesn't happen often. But here, I think there's more than enough evidence that shows us that King Nebuchadnezzar, a pagan, heathen king, is actually transformed as he encounters and experiences the God of Yahweh. And there's a few things I would say that show us that. We see true repentance in this king. His repentance involved a complete retracing of the steps that he had taken in his rebellion. And I think there's a few ways we see that. Think about his eyes. When he looks over his kingdom, where is his eyes? His eyes are over his kingdom and over the other nations. His eyes are looking at all of his accomplishments, horizontal and even um, downward. And to the side, comparing himself with other empires and other kings. He is the greatest. But what happens in his confession, verse 34, where are his eyes? Nebuchadnezzar, lit, I lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me. 
You see, what I say about pride, it skews how we view ourselves. And we aren't reasonable. It's actually irrational to think that we are the greatest things in sliced bread. But here, reason returns to him once he looks to the heavens. No longer is his eyes looking toward others and his own great kingdom and his palace. But he now looks to the heavens. And his reason returns to him. And he begins to confess and repent. And we see further, he confesses God's sovereignty. What does he say? For his dominion, God's dominion, is an everlasting dominion. Verse 35, all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and amongst the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? And look at verse 37. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven. For all his works are right and his ways are just. He recognizes and confesses God is truly sovereign. God is the one who has granted him success. God is the one who has granted him military power. God has granted him intelligence. He recognizes God's sovereignty. But what's even more amazing than that is he actually uses covenantal language. What is only used for the Israelites, for the Jewish people, he actually somehow begins to articulate himself. Verse 30, uh, end of verse 34. His kingdom endures what? From generation to generation. That was God's covenant promise to Abraham. And for generation upon generation that God would be faithful. And here a pagan God or a pagan king actually begins to articulate this covenant promise that God makes to his people that is also for him, who's a Gentile, who's outside of God's promise. He recognizes somehow that this God is also the God who endures from generation to generation. And then he also he confesses his own, God's righteousness and mercy, right? In verse 37, now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. He had a horrible, horrible experience. And what does he say? He says all his ways are just. Even the way that this sovereign king, God himself, would treated me. That is just, and it is right, and it is righteous. Do you see this? No longer is it blame, but even through the darkest moments of this king's life, he's able to say God is just in all of his ways, in all of his actions. He is perfect. And we see God's mercy for Nebuchadnezzar that actually makes me Wonder how scandalous God's grace and his mercy are for his people. This king was horrible. This king killed and tortured and persecuted followers of God. He demolished other nations like Egypt and Assyria. He was an evil, crooked king. And yet, God not only spares him, but brings him into the family of God. How scandalous is that? But this is God's heart, not only for King Nebuchadnezzar, but also for us. 
You see, when we read the story of King Nebuchadnezzar from chapter 1 through the end of chapter 4, we need to see ourselves in his shoes. We don't deserve God's mercy. We should have been completely destroyed. There should be nothing left of this tree that we think we rule and reign. It should have been completely obliterated, ground to the mill. But what happens? It's only cut off at the stump. And God warns the king and says, until you change, I will bless you again. And that word until is our hope of his love and mercy for us. He wants to bless us. He wants to grant us favor. But we have to recognize who God is. Remember George Foreman, the rumble in the jungle? George Foreman was absolutely enraged and bitter. He had nothing but revenge and hate on his mind. Every time he thought of Muhammad Ali and every time he replayed that boxing match, he was filled with hatred. But in 2003, there was this interview. And this is what George Foreman says. Ali is not the greatest man I've ever known. Or Ali is the greatest man I've ever known. Not just the greatest boxer. That's too small for him. He had a gift. He's not pretty. He's beautiful. Brothers and sisters, for us, in our round-by-round bout with the God of the universe. We want to be kings. But I pray that we would be able to humble ourselves. Maybe we need to go through things that are absolutely difficult, where we become beastly, where we experience hardship, so that we might be humbled to be able to say these words, you are truly the king of the universe. Your dominion reigns from generation to generation. And though I want to be king, Lord, you truly are sovereign. So take your eyes off of yourself and off of your accomplishments, Crossroads. Take your eyes even off of your failures and your disasters. Stop comparing yourself with others. Instead, lift your eyes heavenward and look to Christ, the humbled and exalted king. His death and his resurrection are the means by which we are restored to our senses, and made welcome in the most exalted company, heaven itself. You see, here it's at the table that we experience amazing, amazing hope and joy. Because Christ didn't just come down to the kingdom he established in Babylon. He established and created the entire universe. And he came down willingly, voluntarily, to die on the cross, not for his pride, but so that he might defeat our pride, so that we might be restored, that we might be broken and humble, so we might be able to live, practice mercy, practice justice, and love to others as Christ has loved us. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the good news the good news that, Lord, we can be transformed. That you could take a hard-hearted king like Nebuchadnezzar and completely transform him to a man who understands who the true king is, who is full of repentance and acknowledges who you are. 
Lord, I pray that will be true of us so that, Lord, we might be able to love others, that as we practice humility, we might be able to practice justice and mercy to our neighbors and to our friends and to our community. Lord, won't you do that, not by our own might or our own resilience or our own strength, but only by the strength that you give us and enable us with. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As we continue